Today's special edition of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We partner with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2022, Dunstreet will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action, give hope and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's podcast is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Who knew that using a different coloured pen could make a will invalid or removing some staples meant the document is no longer legally recognised and the pages would fall out because the staples aren't there. Morris Blackburn's expert lawyers know all the important tips and make creating a will easy. Simply complete the online form and they'll arrange a time to discuss your needs and prepare your will and store it at no extra cost with the staples in it. Search Morris Blackburn Wills today and get started on your affordable lawyer written will. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast, which is out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaign issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. Weirdly enough, this is an episode that's actually a joint episode with a good buddy of mine, Ben Hart, who's um, done a, a podcast series called Story Craft. Uh, it's a podcast about the art and science of storytelling. And every episode, he has chatted with someone who knows stories deep down in their bones, journalists, uh, communication experts, and campaigners. In his final episode, he actually interviewed me. And so what we thought we'd do is we'd do a joint episode um, and punch up that episode uh, of him interviewing me, which is really weird because I've been doing podcasts now for over a decade and I've never been interviewed before on a podcast until I uh, did this episode with um, Ben. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. Anyway, so we thought we would share it um, with you, but you should also check out Ben's um, first season of Storycraft um, and give him a follow and um, give him a like and uh, leave a review and all that kind of stuff to help um, his uh you know, ratings and that kind of stuff. So it's called Storycraft. But anyway, here's uh, a copy of that interview that Ben uh, uh, did with me, which basically talks about sort of how I got into organising and all that kind of stuff and my story. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser and Spotify. And don't forget Spotify is adding a five-star review system to their app this year. So be sure to give us five stars uh, when you're done listening to today's episode. Um, And uh, for all of our updates, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's special episode. I think working on a whole number of political campaigns here in Australia, you know, the 03 uh, campaign, I was a campaign manager all the way through to 2010. You know, those nights standing over a folding machine at four in the morning trying to get out a mail out with someone else and going, what are we fucking doing here? This is bullshit. No one is going to read this letter and I'm exhausted and this is stupid, right? So I started to question the the effectiveness of some of the things that we did in our political campaigns, um, even before the Obama campaign happened. And the Obama campaign happened and I went, all right, okay, this is something that we need to do. I'm Ben Hart and welcome to Storycraft, a podcast about the art and science of storytelling. 
I've been in the business of telling stories for more than two decades as a journalist, communications advisor, and now heading up my own storytelling-led comms agency, Fireside. In this six-episode season of Storycraft, we've heard from all sorts of storytellers who've shared what they've learned about making stories that simply worked. So whether you're in the story business, think storytelling might make you better at what you do, or you just love a good yarn, I hope you'll take something away from these conversations. Over the past five episodes, I've introduced you to five very different storytellers, journalists and communications practitioners who've been working to rewrite, establish scripts and change the way we think about narratives in finance, the justice system, sport, Indigenous Australia and popular culture. In this sixth and final episode of the pilot season of Storycraft, we're finishing up by tackling a big one the use of narratives in the related spheres of politics and social movements. It's a conversation with community organising expert and political strategist Stephen Donnelly, who grabbed the winning storytelling framework from Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, brought it back to Australia and used it to help Daniel Andrews achieve a historic Victorian state election victory in 2014. Today, Donnelly continues to use storytelling to build social and political movements at the helm of his community organising consultancy, Dunstreet. At the core of Donnelly's methodology is a theory developed by American community organiser and Harvard academic Marshall Gans. Gans argues that in order to create change, you need to first start with a story, an origin story consisting of moments of challenge and choice, what he calls the story of self. That story creates connection with others and dramatically increases the chances they will join you in the change you're trying to achieve. Donnelly's own origin story begins in regional Victoria. The youngest of five children, born to blue-collar parents who migrated from Scotland, Donnelly learned the value of community and social connection in a working-class neighbourhood in regional Warrigal. There he learned that if you want to change things, sometimes you've got to stand up and rally others around a cause. For Donnelly, the year 1992 and the opposing ideologies of Jeff Kennett's economic rationalism and Paul Keating's vision for a modern egalitarian Australia were pivotal. That was when a 16-year-old stumbled into the world of politics. When Jeff Kennett privatised the coal industry in the Latrobe Valley. A lot of my uh, family, as in my cousins, worked in that industry. So when Kenneth privatised it, you know, a lot of them were made redundant or lost their jobs overnight. And I think I was about um, in year 10 or 11 at the time. That would have been like 92. And I just didn't realise that employment was something that could be taken away. Um, That was a bit of a shock to a a 16, 17-year-old. And I was really... um, I was really pissed about it, actually, and I wanted to do something. And I remember sitting at the dinner table one night and there was going to be a big protest or a rally being organised in Melbourne on the steps of Parliament House. Some of my siblings went, they were school teachers, and I wanted to go as well. And I said to mum and dad, I need to go down there and protest against Jeff Kennett. Um, And they said, not in your life. (laughs) You're not going to do that. Even though they were Labor people, they just thought I was trying to get out of school. So my first opportunity of activism was thwarted by my parents. Um, And it was maybe four months later, so March 1993. 
and it was federal election day. And I remember reading the front page of the Herald Sun that morning saying that Paul Keating and Labor were about to get, you know, turfed out of government. And mum and dad went to vote. I was still too young. I couldn't vote, actually. But I walked down to the um, Warrigal Shire offices to with mum and dad to go vote. And it just dawned on me on the journey down that I thought, this can really change the way that the country is governing. And in fact, Jeff Kennett is getting away with everything he wants to do in Victoria unchecked. And there's no one there stopping him. And if we lose federally, then there's definitely no one stopping Jeff Kennett and the Tories will just tear this country apart. And I thought, shit, I need to do something here. But I didn't know what to do. I can't vote. And I walked up with mum and dad and then I saw a guy handing out how to vote cards for the Labor Party. Not a, I wasn't a member of the Labor Party. My parents had never been politically active, Labor family, but not activists, you know. And I just had this moment of urgency where I walked up to this complete stranger and I said, excuse me, can I give you a hand? And he said, sure. And he gave you a wad full of how to votes and he said, go stand over there. And I stood there for the whole day handing out for the Labor Party. And I had this sense of, at the start, I was super nervous because some of my school friends were walking past and saw me, like, and they were thinking, who's this freak, right? I don't know if Steve was into this kind of stuff, right? He's in a cult handing out these things. But then after a while, I started, then sort of like old grannies would grab it off me and go, good on you, love, good to see you. You know, Warrigal's not a labour town by any stretch of the imagination. And that just felt me, filled me with pride. And I thought, wow, this is so cool. This public display of, of a political allegiance. I thought, oh, this is I think I might be able to do something here that might actually create some sort of change. That night, I went home and Paul Kenning won. And it was all because of me. No. Um, there was actually a swing to us in that booth. I um, still lost the booth. But, yeah, I, it just and it just drove home for me that if you get involved in something, that you can actually create change. So you went from handing out how to vote cards for the Labor Party to then going and working in the union movement for the Retail Employees Union, the SDA, uh, as an industrial officer, and by your own admission, you were actually really terrible at it. Tell us more about that. I got uh, I got involved in student politics. I spent more time on other campuses than my own, so I didn't get my degree initially. I got uh, offered a job at the SDA, and they said, do you want to be an industrial officer or do you want to be a, a union organiser? And I was, I think deep down I wanted to be an organiser, but I just didn't think I had the courage to talk to strangers, uh, and I was nervous about that. And I opted, I think, for what I thought would have been the easy option, and that was to be an industrial officer and just sit at a desk and sort of do that kind of stuff. But in the end, it was the I just completely misjudged my own abilities <laughs> because I was terrible at it. Uh, I hated it. The secretary, Michael Donovan, called me one day and said, Steve, you're not very good at this, are you? And I said, no, no, I'm not. I'll be honest with you. And he said, right, okay, we're going to start up an organising unit that's going to focus specifically on like the two hard basket companies that we just can't get a foothold in. And um, I suggest you apply for it. And that the writing was on the wall. The writing was on the wall for me at that moment. I went right. Okay, I better do that. And I took to it like a duck to water. I loved it. It was just wonderful um, going in the challenge of going into workplaces, building relationships with people, talking to them about unionism, and and if you organise collectively, how you can create change, and that challenge of working through that process with people and building up and enabling their leadership. Um, and getting them to realise that if they pull their resources together that they actually can improve their working conditions was um, remarkable and that kind of just set me on a journey that I haven't stopped doing. Perhaps I should ask you just for the uninitiated for you to explain what organising actually is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It is a good question because there is there is somewhat of a debate about what organising is and I think the word gets thrown around qu- quite a lot and sometimes it's misused. And what organising seeks to do 
is to identify um, who is the constituency that you are seeking to um, work with, identify what their shared purpose is that unites them. So, what is their what is their ultimate goal or dream? What is the future? What you know? What does the, the the future or promise look like? Identifying leadership within that constituency, then working with that leadership to grow the capacity of the constituency, that is its resources and its interests, together by articulating a strategy that leads towards a strategic goal, something specifically that you're trying to work towards right now, um, and coming up with essentially a theory of change, which is if we do this, then our opponents will do that and therefore this will happen, right? After cutting his teeth organising in retail workplaces across Victoria, Donnelly took his gift for organising into the state and federal political spheres. But it wasn't until 2008 when he and a number of other Labor Party activists volunteered on Barack Obama's stunning presidential campaign that Donnelly saw the power of effective political organising in action. The secret ingredient? using storytelling and narrative to build a mass movement that could persuade voters to back Obama. I always have to be uh, very, very clear about the intentions of our trip on the Obama campaign. Some friends, of which you do know as well, um, uh, there was five of us. Uh, we'd been, we, we all met out uh, through student politics and had all been always been talking about we need to go over to the United States for a presidential campaign. That's something we must always do. But, you know, like guys sitting around at a pub, we're full of shit and it never ever, ever happens. In the end, five of us whittled down from a big list of people saying, yeah, I'm in for that. And it comes down to always, it's always just five, right? And uh, and over we went. It was called Aussies for Obama, a road trip you can believe in. We had swag. Uh, we had T-shirts that when we popped into campaign offices, we gave them and you know, this bewilderment to these you know, volunteers and campaign field organisers going, you're from where? You know, like you were popping in Little Rock, Arkansas. And they're like, You've come, you folks have come a long way to campus here. And it was so much fun. I loved it. But at the time, I'd been union organising for, for a while now and I was getting a little, not jaded, but I was a bit tired. And I was sort of wondering, what am I going to do next, you know? Because my political experience here in Australia with the Labor Party, I'd never seen a campaign utilise volunteer capacity in that way before. You think about the volunteer experience for Labor Party members. We never got non-party members to do things. It was basically hand out on election day, maybe do a bit of pre-poll, do letterboxing and rock up to like the, you know, the local fundraiser, the trivia night. And that's it. That's all we did, right? We never phone banked, we never door knocked, we rarely door knocked, and going over to the States and volunteering on the Obama campaign and seeing, and we travelled right, I mean, we travelled across 17 states, so we saw, you know, a fair bit of the country across those three or four weeks. Just remarkable to see how many people were getting involved in the democratic process. They believed in Obama and they wanted change, but, um, you know... That campaign reached out to um, ordinary folks and said, there is a way that you can play a part in that and we'll give you the tools. We will enable you to achieve this shared purpose, which is to elect Barack Obama. Using the power of public narrative yeah, to do that. absolutely central. Absolutely central. And do you remember the, the, the moment or the first time that you actually it actually clicked that, that this was what was going on, that you were first exposed to this new way of thinking around organising and campaigning? Uh, it didn't actually click 
see once again, Stephen, just too much in the moment and not paying attention to what's going on around him. Um, they, when you come for a shift, they sit you down and they go around the room and ask everyone to share why you're here. And uh, we're all thinking, God, we're from Australia. <laughs> you know, what's my answer going to be? But everyone's answers were, this is what's important to me. Um, you know, my daughter's um, education is critically important to me and I want to get involved in this campaign because I think Obama's going to present an opportunity for which, you know, we'll get good schooling in our area. Like these are the stories that we were hearing, right? It was only in 2013 when we went back and met with people from OFA and they kind of explained everything. I went, oh, this all makes sense now, you idiot, Stephen. But even then sitting there going, well, this is kind of um, like, who does that in Australia? We never did that. No one stopped. It was like, hi, what's your name? All right, go do this, you know. Do this thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I won't see you again, right? Um, we treat our volunteer, we treated our members like cannon fodder sometimes. Even if they were hanging on election day, it was kind of like, you know, yeah, I know you're down for two hours, but can you do like, you know, <laughs> six hours or something, right? No training. No. Tell me a bit about yourself. Where are you from? What motivated you to come and, you know, hand out for Labor Party? You know, none of that. Um, and, yeah, narrative is so critical in the work of organising because it enables us to um, understand who we all are as individuals, but then lift up moments that we share together. So we can realise, oh, well, actually, whilst I am an individual, I am a part of something bigger. And here are the moments that I recall that bring us together. But also then, well, what's the story right now? What do we need to do now? And what exactly are you asking for me? What are you asking of me to do right now? And so you then grab that that framework and then decide to, to apply that to a Victorian context? Yeah, I mean, it's a long... That's simplifying the... Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, abs- yeah, yes, essentially. I... I I think working on a whole number of campaigns, political campaigns here in Australia, um, the 03 uh, campaign, um, I was a campaign manager, all the way through to 2010, you know, those nights standing over a folding machine at four in the morning trying to get out a mail out with someone else and going, what are we fucking doing here? This is bullshit. No one is going to read this letter and I'm exhausted and this is stupid, right? So I started to question the the effectiveness of some of the things that we did in our political campaigns, even before the Obama campaign happened. And the Obama campaign happened and I went, all right, okay, this is something that we need to do. And I worked on a couple of um, by-elections. I did a couple of internal union elections where I was running the campaign and I started to trial what I call direct voter contact, trying to get people to talk to other people, both on the phones and in workplaces and, and whatnot. Um, Telling their stories. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. I hadn't sort of seen the manual, quote unquote. Um, and it was only when I went over in 2013, early 2013, I'd just been appointed the, the Assistant Secretary of the Victorian branch of the, of the Labor Party. And I remember sitting in my office. I was, I'd been sort of given the task of doing the federal campaign for Victoria, uh, I remember looking out my window going, I don't want to just be the guy that does, that organises the mail-outs for the Victorian part of the campaign and makes sure the candidates are happy. Like, anyone can do that. We need to do something different here. So we basically sought our allies in the party that also sort of felt the same way. And a couple of us went over to the States and we lined up over the course of two or three weeks, you know, meeting after meeting um, with people from not just the Democrats, but more importantly, people from OFA, so what was then now called Organising for Action, but originally was the Obama for America campaign, and just picked their brain about 
the whole campaign, like the organising component of the campaign. Um, that's what I wanted to know about. I wanted to know how the hell they mobilised, organised and mobilised millions of people to go and do this stuff. And it started with narrative. You're listening to Storycraft, a podcast about the art and science of storytelling. In this episode, a conversation with Stephen Donnelly, political campaigner, strategist, and the secret weapon behind the rise of Daniel Andrews. If you like Storycraft, check out The Story, a new digital publication that dives headfirst into the world of stories, exploring their power and mechanics. Head to the storycom media or go to the link in the show notes to check out pieces by some of Australia's leading storytellers including Clementine Ford on the joy and challenges of writing non-fiction and Dorian Linsky on the British island that used the power of story to drive some of the world's highest COVID vaccination rates. The story is for anyone who tells stories, loves stories or is just curious about how and why they work. So it's 2014, and Stephen Donnelly is the new Assistant State Secretary of Victorian Labor. He's returned from another trip to the US. This time, Democratic Party insiders have shared their playbook on how to win elections. Donnelly has brought back the theory and tactics to help state labor defeat the incumbent Liberal government at the 2014 state election. With Donnelly's US-inspired campaign, Victorian Labor mobilised 5,500 volunteers. Amazingly, most were not even members of the party. By the end of the campaign, they would make half a million phone calls and knock on about 80,000 doors. The campaign strategy secured a surprise victory for a bloke by the name of Daniel Andrews. On a red-letter day for the Labor Party, which has regained government tonight after just four years in the wilderness... So, Stephen, we'll talk about the 2014 campaign in a second, but before we do, let's just go to Marshall Gantz. And so he was the person behind the model that Obama used in 08 and 12 to win those elections. Can you just tell us a bit about Gantz and what his model involved? Okay. How long have we got? <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah, exactly. Um, the Gantz model of community organising is centred around leadership as a practice. Um, and Marshall talks about it as leadership is about enabling others to achieve shared purpose under conditions of uncertainty. Those conditions of uncertainty then require leaders. And by, and by leaders, he means, he doesn't mean like, he doesn't just mean like Daniel Andrews. He means leaders in communities, like people like you and I or whoever who are pissed off about the lack of funding for your local hospital want to step up and create change you are now taking on a leadership role. That's who he means. But uh, even a leadership role in a family or in any kind of context. Absolutely. Really, yeah. yeah, absolutely. To enable shared purpose under conditions of uncertainty, those conditions of uncertainty then require a response because they present a challenge to what he says is the head, heart and hands. And that's a lens upon which we have to consider the work that we do. The head represents the st- strategy or the strategic, the how we're going to do something. The heart represents the narrative, why we need to do something, and then the hands is a, is a com- combination of both head and heart in order to engage the hands to actually physically do it, the action, the shared action and understanding. So those conditions of uncertainty present a challenge to those three things. A condition of uncertainty like COVID has been a condition of uncertainty for the past 
18 months or however long this has been, it requires us to strategize new ways to overcome this condition of uncertainty, isolation, um, being locked in our homes, that kind of stuff, right? It also requires our hands to work out new skills to actually overcome this challenge. But it also requires us to have the hope and courage to act as well, and that's the narrative component. The public narrative as a piece together must include a story of self, a story of us, and a story of now. The ordering of it really is up to you, I guess. But the story of self should be an origin story where you are the central character. So the structure of the story of self is you are the central character and the plot of your story should be based around a challenge that you faced, um, ideally um, as a younger person. It should be an origin story. So it can't be a story of what happened three weeks ago. So ideally you should be under 17 or younger. It should be a moment in your childhood because that's when you are formulating the things that you value the most. What challenge did you face? Why was it a challenge? Describe the challenge. What choices were available to you at that moment? And what choice did you take and why did you take that choice? And how did you feel at that moment in making that choice? In that moment, we discover whether you have courage or hope or how you overcame fear or what was the action motivator that sought you to make that choice? And then what was the outcome from that choice? And the thing that is critical in narrative is can you show the moment, not tell it? So it's critical that you vividly explain the story, um, which I think is in the the craft of public narrative is tough for people to get their head around. And I get that when as a coach, you you want to say, no, no, don't tell me what happened. Show me what happened. Take me to the moment. Describe the room or what you're wearing or the experiences because we need to go there with you because we've not been there, but you need to take us with us to show us the moment. So that's a story of self. And in that moment, we learn why you care. We learn what your values are. We learn what your morals are from that story. The story of us is the same structure, but the character becomes the us. So it's what challenges have we faced in the past? What choices did we make together to overcome that challenge? And what were the outcomes from that particular challenge? And how did it make us feel? Where did we find the courage and the hope to overcome that challenge. But the us is an experiential us, not a categorical us. It's the people in the room. So if you're delivering public narrative to um, um, to a group of people, the story of us then has to be nested in the experiences in the room, not some category. That's sometimes hard for people to get their head around. When Obama gave his speech to the Democratic National Convention in 2000 four in Boston. That's his famous speech when he first sort of came on the scene, right? His story was um, a story of self, us, and now, but the story of us was the story of America because everyone in the room, in the room, even though it was in front of a huge conference center and it was on TV, he had to talk about the experiences, the shared experiences that we all had as Americans. My parents shared not only an improbable love, they shared an abiding faith in the possibilities of this nation. They would give me an African name, Barack, or Blessed, believing that in a tolerant America, your name is no barrier to success. They imagined, they imagined me going to the best schools in the land, even though they weren't rich, because in a generous America, you don't have to be rich to achieve your potential. They're both passed away now. And yet I know that on this night, they looked down on me with great pride. They stand here 
And I stand here today grateful for the diversity of my heritage, aware that my parents' dreams live on in my two precious daughters. I stand here knowing that my story is part of the larger American story, that I owe a debt to all of those who came before me, and that in no other country on earth is my story even possible. But if you're just in a room, physical room with six people, then the story of us has to be those six people. What experiences have we been through? Uh, and then the story of now is, what is the urgent threat that a group of people, it could be us or it could be a group that we're seeking to organise for or with, what is the urgent threat that they're facing right now and why is it urgent? Can you show it with moments, like describe it for us so we feel that urgency? Where is the hope? And then what is the strategic path that we can go on to then create change? So then specifically, what is the ask that you're asking of me right now? Um, and a great example of that is the speech, the, what is all known as the I Have a Dream speech by Dr. Martin Luther King um, in front of the um, Lincoln Memorial um, is actually known as the Fierce Urgency of Now. That, the speech is actually called the Fierce Urgency of Now. And in that speech, he presents both a nightmare scenario for the African-American community, but also the dream scenario. We all remember the dream scenario. I have a dream, you know. But he really does talk about the nightmare scenario that they are going through right now. This is the experience our people are facing right now. Here is the urgent threat that we are facing. Segregation and, and violence and inequality and systemic racism. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity 100 years later. So in order to understand where you get hope, you have to actually first of all get people to sit up and go, oh, shit, we need to do something right now. As in right now, not tomorrow, now, because this is not good enough. So you create this hurt scenario, but you also need to create this hope. Um, and it's from that hope you go, all right, I know where to go from here, but what exactly do you need me to do? And that's where you say, well, here's our strategy and here's the ask right now and here this is how it fits within the strategy. And together, what you're trying to say into that public narrative is, as a leader, here's, here's what I'm about in my story of self. This is why I care. This is why we care. Here's moments in our past, why we've cared in our story of us. And here's why we need to care right now in our story of now and what we need to do right now because storytelling is about trying to get people to move. That's the critical part of it. We've talked about this in a in a organising context and a political context, but th this is also a framework that people could use in their in their work and in their lives and in their families and that kind of thing. It's it's, it's broadly applicable, yeah. Mm, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's been studies that have said that I think like seventy percent of instructional communication between parents and their children is through storytelling. So in order to get someone to get one of their kids to not go climb that tree out the front yard, your parents won't say to you, you know, statistically, you know, 33% of children between the ages of five and 15 have fallen out of apple trees, right? They'll say, don't climb that tree because your cousin 
did that last summer and broke his arm and fell down and he missed out on the cricket finals. So I don't want to see any of you boys up that tree today. So th- there's a narrative there that is instru- instructing them to do something. And I think broadly then you take that principle and expand it to whatever role or capacity you're in, whether it's employment or within the community. If you're trying to get people to do something, a specific ask, then I think public narrative is a, is, is a perfect practice for that scenario. And in, and in, in leading it, a team as well. I mean, that that's that's got to be kind of a big one in in a kind of a corporate context. If you're kind of like yeah, that kind of workplace leadership. If, you, if you're trying to lead a team into uncertainty, to be able to employ this kind of structure would be helpful, without a doubt. And because the ask in the end in the story of now is a it's you're asking them to commit to something together, not as individuals. Because organising is about trying to bring people together, right? You know, you know, in a political context, whether it be we go and knock on doors, we're going to do it together. We're not going to send you out on your own or we're going to make calls. We're going to make calls together. Or if it's uh, in a work sense that we've got this big challenge like a COVID, you know, the ask is can I count on you to meet, you know, next Thursday afternoon to sit down and strategize exactly how we're going to overcome this threat that we're facing right now. And it's all of us doing it together. Hmm. So- you know, in a workplace setting, I think it's it's so important. And you know what? It's kind of, I think um, the hardest part for people in public narrative is the story of self because there is a, a reluctance to be vulnerable because in that story of self, that origin story, that origin moment, the challenge usually presents uh, a case where you see the vulnerability in that person, the storyteller. And some people are like, I don't think I'm prepared to open up about that, you know. But in doing so, if you are vulnerable, people get you. Going back to the application of the public narrative model to politics and politicians, did you see how this firsthand, how this changed the way that Daniel Andrews spoke about himself and his story? And more broadly, is this something that you think Australian politicians are good at or there's still a long way to go? Because obviously, you know, we can point to a range of examples where American politicians are, have been doing this kind of stuff very well for a long time. Are Australian politicians getting it? Um, and if not, why not? To your first point or first question, Daniel was great. He really embraced the, the practice of public narrative for whatever reason. So we sat down with him at some point in the 2014 campaign, but pretty early, like our organisers were not, we're in the, on the ground in by sort of February, March. And Daniel, we wanted to get him in front of prospective volunteers and people that we were recruiting into the Community Action Network. And um, at, at sort of events, you know, um, which called them like, they're kind of like house meetings, but we, they were in people's homes or they were in, in a community centre or at a barbecue or something. But the specific purpose was that someone, or maybe a couple of people, needed to share their public narrative. Um, maybe a volunteer might get up at the start and introduce herself and share their story of self. But at one point, Daniel needs to get up and communicate and speak to everyone. Now, historically, what a politician does is just rattle off a whole bunch of stats about the economy or what's going on in the state or, you know, what you know, just boring shit, right? And we said to Daniel, we don't want you to do that. Like, you can do that anywhere else and you probably do it all the time. That's great. But for these people, we don't want that. And um, We want your story. And we also want you to then articulate a story of us. And also we want you to articulate what is the threat we're facing right now. 
story of now. Yeah, and what, what, what you, as in you in the room, need to do to create that change. And he, he, he got it. He said, sure. I don't think I'd sat down and worked with him on his public narrative, on his story of self. Uh, I think some of his own team did, but I kind of went through it with them. At every, every event, he got up there and he, he told his story. Um, and I think by the time we got to the actual campaign proper, like when, what a journalist would call a campaign, um, sort of that six weeks out or whatever, and the ad started running, we, you know, you saw ads about Daniel. And at that stage, you know, this is 2014, still a lot of people don't know who he is, right? He's an opposition leader in a state, state parliament. No one, knows, no one knows who Matt Guy is, right? So no one knew who Daniel was. So we did need to tell his story. And it was a story about him growing up in, in, in Wang, right, on the farm and talked about his dad. And his dad wasn't well at the time and they included that, you know. And I think that he showed vulnerability, which a lot of Australian politicians don't like doing. And he did. And it was authentic as well. It wasn't bullshit. It wasn't tokenistic. It didn't come off looking a bit kind of exploitative. It actually was like he was nervous about that because, you know, he loves his mum and dad, right? My family... They're good people, proud and independent. Small business and hard work is in their blood. Like most people, they don't, they don't want to be carried by governments, but they don't want to be forgotten by them either. And there was a time in their life, in our lives, when they were forgotten. There was a time when they felt alone. My parents had a shop, a business in Pascoe Vale Road, Glenroy. The place next door, well, it blew up in suspicious circumstances. And the awful blast took my old man's pride and joy with it. They were left with literally nothing. There was no income. There was no insurance, no compensation, no support, no help, no one to call. They had a choice to make, bankruptcy or struggle through. They chose to struggle through. My father rebuilt himself and our family from scratch. They started again with nothing. But he, 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 he got it. He understood it. He understood the, the importance of it. And I just think that that was so important for that campaign. And, then, and, then, and that story continues to evolve into the 2018 one, right? And I think for the next campaign in almost 12 months' time, that story then continues to evolve. Certainly the story of us now evolves, right? We've all just been through, as Victorians and Melbournians in particular, we've all just been through this experience. And I think Daniel understands how to construct and communicate a story, a public narrative, uh, not just of himself, but also of us and of now. And that will be critical in his success uh, the next election. And the um, the broader political class? The broader, yeah. Okay. So I kind of did do a bit of a drive-by, <laughs> didn't I, there? Of I think, by and large, most public-facing politicians like high-profile ones, probably struggle with it a bit. And I think it comes to that point about vulnerability. But I also think that I don't think anyone's ever sat down with them and said, this is the, stru- like, this is the structure of public narrative in the Gantz model. So it's not fair to say to them, you know, they're crap at it because no one's actually coached them, right? I did some work with um, uh, Jacinda Ardern's predecessor, um, um, Andrew uh, Little, over in New Zealand and coached him on public narrative. Lovely guy, um, smart, smart person, and really committed to his community. Ex-lawyer, industrial lawyer, um, but I think there was a thought that he wasn't great at communicating how what he valued in life. You know, he was just a bit too tight. So 
I came over um, in the week leading up to the national conference in which he was going to deliver a sort of keynote speech. And I said to him, it should be based on narrative. Like if you've got all these major announcements to make around um, child welfare and housing and all that kind of stuff, weave narrative into it, you know. Um, why is it important to him that every child has the opportunity to live in a warm, safe home? So he talked about a story about him growing up, you know. Hearing the speech at the end, I was critical and thinking, oh, I wonder, did, did he really nail it? Everyone around me was going, that was great. I didn't know that about Andrew. That's fantastic, you know. And I went, oh, okay, it must have worked. People just need to sit down with leaders, I think, and actually say, no, this is actually how the craft works. This is, you know, tell me about moments in your life that has led you to being taking this job today. I don't want your CV. I want actual moments. Elbow, you know, we all know that Elbow grew up in social housing, but that's kind of it. Uh, There's more to Anthony Albanese that we don't know about, and I think that what he should be doing between now and the election is to share more of his own origin story and then interweaving that into the story of us. And that's the only thing I should mention as well. They need to link. The story of self, us, and now must link. So therefore, what what is the value proposition in the story of us? Is it the same in the story of self? Is it the same, same story of now? That is the link, the thread that you weave through. Is it solidarity overcomes isolation? Is it fear being overcome by hope? Is it... Um, you know, is it sort of apathy being overcome by urgency? So there needs to be a thread through it as well. That's that's a critical part. But I would like to see more politicians in Australia actually share their public narrative, a proper public narrative, an actual origin story. So to the people listening to this, they've heard what you've had to say, they've been kind of drawn in by your personal story and your, your narrative, um, and they want to bring more story into their own work, lives, existence what's the what's the one bit of advice about how they can start that start that process well apart from um having the opportunity to um, study under marshall gans himself there actually are a lot of in fact there's a lot of free videos online uh on youtube that you can um, see marshall give lectures on public narrative so if, if you want to do that just do that but i would start by ask going away and thinking to yourself of moments in your younger years of when you faced a challenge and uh, and how you responded to it. And like I said earlier, you know, not, not needing to be a tale of woe, but more kind of a moment, when did you kind of get pushed in the dirt? How did you get up? You know, where did you get the strength or the courage or the hope to stand up and keep going? When have you seen a great example of leadership that has changed how you are today? Sometimes can be a good question that you should ask of yourself. Where do your values come from? Where were those values shaped? And what specific moment were they shaped? Because it is. A lot of people say, oh, Stephen, I can't think of any particular moment. But if you start to ask questions, see, it's easier when someone else is asking you the questions. It's hard to do internal analysis, right? Well, maybe some people are good at it, but I'm not. But when someone's probing you, then that's where you can start to uncover um, those moments. Because you're interested in knowing, well, what did you do next, you know? Um, and where did that? Where, where did you get the idea from that? And why did that lead to that? And then eventually you find out moments where you go, oh, right, I understand where you're coming from now. So I guess for someone who wants to start this craft, either start to ask yourself these critical questions or get someone to do it for you, like you. That's what you do. That's your job. And that's my job as well. So maybe that's what they should do. Maybe they should give us a call. How's that for a plug?
That was Stephen Donnelly, former State Secretary of the Victorian Labor Party and the founder and director of community organising consultancy Dunn Street. Stephen also hosts his own podcast called Socially Democratic, which is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the final episode in a six-part pilot season of Storycraft. If you like what you've heard, tell your friends, colleagues and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Doing this helps more people find the show. We hope to be back sometime in early 2022 with more guests and conversations exploring the art and science of storytelling. In the meantime, don't forget to check out our sister publication, The Story. Details are in the show notes. But for now, it's time to take a break and enjoy the summer. Storycraft is produced by Dashiell Lawrence of Retrospect and presented by me, Ben Hart. Ben Hart.